Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. And on today's episode, we interviewed Doug Kelsey, who was general manager and CEO of TriMet Transit in Portland, Oregon. And we take a look at his background, uh, a long background, both in the private sector and then 20 years in the transportation industry, as well as his role in helping to manage and coordinate all the logistics for public transportation related to the Olympics over the last decade. And now his role at TriMet as general manager, uh, both responding to and recovering from the COVID-19 crisis and the recent unrest there in the city, as well as uh, plans for the future. Doug takes a deep look at some of the um, intrinsic values of public transportation and what he hopes to accomplish there, both in his region and really, I believe, as an example for the world. All that on this edition of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. America and the world's number one transit podcast, where we interview the top CEOs around the world and ask them about their lives, their careers, their projects, and what's coming next for transit. And boy, oh boy, what an interesting time we're in today. And we've got one of the top leaders in North American transit with us on our show today, and that's Doug Kelsey. Doug is CEO and general manager of TriMet in Portland, Oregon, and a good friend of mine. Doug, thanks so much for being on the show today. Paul, it's great to see you. and glad to be here. Yeah. Wow. Where to start, huh? <laughs> There's so much going on. You and I were just talking in the green room here about all the things going on, especially in the Pacific Northwest area. But we'll get to all that in a little bit. So <laughs> you, you've had a long career in public transportation, one of the real respected leaders in our industry. I remember when I was at MTA as CEO in Baltimore, and I yeah. think you were COO then at the time of TriMet, yeah. You were having trouble with ice on our light rail, the wires, and you you hooked me up, man. You gave me the right lead on what to do, and my guys followed up with your team, and it helped us dramatically that winter. So thank you in retrospect from five years ago, whenever that was. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all learn from each other, and that's one of the powerful things, Paul, about this industry is we don't compete, and it's how right. do you share practices to help leverage the circumstances that we each face that are common and some that are uncommon, right? So that's one of the, the secret sauces and the powers of this industry. I think it's going to be even more demand in the future. That's excellent. So how did you end up here? Tell us a little about where you started out in your career. And I know you've been in a couple of really big agencies and had very important roles. And then I'm interested in digging in just a little bit. I know you don't like to talk about it, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the Olympics and your role in helping to do transportation there. But, but first, start us off where it all began. Well, I'm from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and I spent a lot of my time working across Canada and the United States, Paul, in the private sector. So the best foundation I could ever have hoped for and asked was I worked in the oil industry. So I ultimately was overseeing in Canada 5,000 retail outlets for them. So I was head of national strategy for them, ran Eastern Canada, the Atlantic maritime operations of service stations, bulk plants, terminals. I actually took them through as the lead testifier during the Iraq war, first Iraq war of, of crude oil pricing. So it was very intense. But you learn about IT and real estate and the marketing distribution channels, but all around the customer and how you look at the, that service on a global international platform, oil being the number one traded commodity in the world still today. 
from there, though, the common element, I worked at uh, Starbucks Coffee for a period of time, worked at a company called Private Entrepreneur, Rocky Mountaineer Rail Tours, the largest private-owned rail tour through the Rockies in Canada. Really cool trip, by the way, so really take it. Very yeah. unique. But I was trying to look for the multinational where we had 350,000 employees at the time through the entrepreneurial as I was trying to learn and build my repertoire of experiences of how do you grow? How do you shrink? How do you manage the dynamics of complexity, uh, particularly in large capital environments? And it was my experience through all of those things, uh, including the period of time in the solid waste and recycling industry, a company called Laidlaw of the day. Oh, yeah. Uh, I used to work with Laidlaw. You remember? Okay, yeah. On the public so, transit side, yeah. Okay, well, I was in the solid waste recycling side. Yeah. And so, but the common element for all of it, including multiple Olympic Games, was around the customer. Mm. So, and then I moved into public transportation where I, in Vancouver, took on the commuter rail side called West Coast Express. And then I got into a giant fight with the Class 1 Railway CEO, ultimately Hunter Harrison. So he and I went at it for a period of time over track rates that was my experience in Shell around how do you do big, multiple organizations and using their market power. They went too far. And, and I ultimately led in writing legislation, leading it, and walking it through the Parliament of Canada. It's mm-hmm. now law. And I'll, I failed twice, but got it through on the third time. How do you build coalitions at the federal level? How do you manage the back rooms to the front rooms? And what are the terms around track rates and service levels? And this is a big issue in the United States as well. They just have not decided to take that on. So I did it, even prepared to being fired. So I remember sitting in my living room with my wife saying, because of my private sector background, this is wrong. And I used to do business valuations in the private sector, the time of finance work. They went too far and they got caught and I was not, and I was not going to walk past it. So, so it's what you can negotiate and prepare to where most government processes are tender and such like that. This was, the rules were fundamentally wrong about using taxpayer money for corporate gain. So it's balancing private, big corporate private, way bigger, the oil industry is way bigger than the rail industry. Yeah, and, yeah. and understanding the power of markets and all those things and how you apply that in private sector government services, but ultimately all benefiting the customer. So then I was uh, in the transit industry, which I've been here now for 20 years. And the goal for me is getting multiple experiences to build your palate, your acumen, your circumstantial leadership that evolves over time into what's the right thing to do on balance. And, and so doing commuter rail, then I ran SkyTrain there as the president CEO for in Vancouver, BC, the largest driverless train system in the world st- still today. And then I became uh, the president of the bus company, about, about 1,800 buses when I was there. And then I went over to the transportation authority overall called TransLink. Kevin Desmond's there doing a great job. So oversaw the roads and the bridges in the region, transit police, et cetera. So, and so I was on their boards for the operating subsidiaries and such. And then after that, they cleaned us all out after a failed ballot, about a dozen of us. And then about two months later, I was being recruited down to Portland to become the chief operating officer. And then where I was there for a couple of years in this role, and I've taken on the GM for over two years here now. So uh, yeah. yeah, so private sector, public sector, large, growing, shrinking, understanding how governments work, particularly with the Olympics. The government, it, it, it shows you what government can do and the private sector can do to harness an event that's bigger than every one person. 
Um, so yeah, tell me about that. How, how did you get involved in the Olympics and, and what, what have you done and what are some of the cool things? I mean, the stories you told me were wild, man, how you write, you were running it all, right? You ran the whole transportation for the Olympics. Yeah. Well, in Vancouver in 2010. So it starts off where your country, the United States or in Canada, in this case, your country submits a bid. So Vancouver right. was competing against other cities in Canada, like LA had to compete, et cetera. Then the country submits. So I was one of three lead people test, asked to testify, sitting right next to the prime minister of our country, yeah. all recorded, everything's a guarantee, and to testify to compete to get the games. So at the time, we were, we were competing, if I remember, against Salzburg, Austria, and Pyeongchang, South Korea, who just had the last winter, most recent Winter Olympics. Yes. So Vancouver was successful. So writing the strategy, and I was very fortunate that the chief of staff to the premier of British Columbia phoned me, who used to be my boss at TransLink, and phoned okay. me and said, okay, we're having problems up to this place called Whistler with rail, and would I come <laughs> out? Because nobody trusts anybody else. Would I come in as this neutral party, having a little bit of rail background? So I went in and reviewed it and said they wanted high-speed rail up there. I said, well, the whole thing's in a flipping tunnel if you do that because of the speeds, et cetera. So, and so ultimately it led to the outcome. It said, no, you need to fix the highway. And then after that, I thought I was kind of done. Then they, it evolved. Then they said, when I sit in on the strategic planning sessions, this is the chair of the board of the major telco and others. And I finally said, okay, at the end of the meeting, I said, I can write your transportation plan in 90 days, the whole plan. And that's how it evolved. But I said, I have two criteria. This is my first meeting there. And, and I said, I can write, but I have two criteria. You will answer the phone any time of day or night or early in the morning I call you. And secondly, I pick my own consultants. So they're not through an RFP process. They're going to be people who've actually run things, right? Yeah. So, and so I did. And so I was calling these guys, like the chair of a major telco, two in the morning, three in the morning. And like, it was crazy uh -huh. stuff on top of uh -huh. your day job. So ultimately wrote the transportation plan for what was submitted as the bid. Then I was done. Then I stepped down for a period of time. Then they came back and said, would I actually take on the charge, not just for TransLink, but for all the transportation, the metro region, for all spectator movement, all workforce movement, everybody, air, rail, marine, everything. So, I, you know, in fact, the first question I got, I'll never forget it. The first question I got from the IOC on the cross-examination was, if the terrorists take over the airport on the first day, what is your plan? Yeah, <laughs> you better know what you're you've worked on all that stuff right so yeah. then it's about how do you execute a games is very different than how do you plan for a game so i didn't yeah. bring the transit authority paul back into it till about two years out so i was doing the i was doing my ceo stuff at the same time i'm actually doing the stuff at night on all the olympic stuff for seven years so wow. and i was so good i got paid zero <laughs> <laughs> it was labor all, of love well, it's giving back to your country, to your community, and you're learning an immense amount as well, but it ultimately helped me grow as an individual and learn what's also possible and what I'm personally capable of playing in the deep end of the pool because there is no second chance. You don't get change orders. We built a $2 billion P3. We upgraded a $700 million highway between Vancouver and Whistler. We did all these things. You bring in marshalling buses and logistics. Every day, you have to know what every intersection plan is by day, by time. And so it was, it was a, it's the deep end of the pool. It really is. And you must have done yeah. a good job because weren't you asked to come back and do some of the next Olympics? Well, yeah, I was, I was spent some, a bit of time in Moscow helping there. I was asked to come over, reported to Sir Peter Hende now, a 
Transport for London, who was the commissioner and the UK Secretary of Transportation of the day, helping advise those two directly. And uh, they ended up doing a great job. So I, what I came to learn after seeing Salt Lake and Vancouver and Moscow and uh, Torino, Italy and others, is that everybody will do a good job. The question is, will you do a great job? It's such a beautiful event. It's the closest thing that I've experienced in my life where I was also in Calgary as a citizen, a spectator in, in 1988, I think it was. And so seeing it, and my brother's also a two-time Olympic athlete. So I've seen it from the athlete's perspective. I've seen it from the planning perspective, from the international IOC lens, et cetera. So in the transit lens, it, it, but it's helped me with my corporate background combined with the public sector background, with the power of government and the power of the private sector can do together. And you can eliminate all kinds of scar tissue. The policies that are all justified today, nothing it should not be up for change. And sometimes we need crisis like we're even in today to have conversations around what is possible because someone put those in place, those rules for, that were right for the time, but you absolutely have to have courage to make those changes. Otherwise, you can't be really great. And so that showed me what's possible. And where the world comes together, Paul, truly comes together, regardless whether you're left-handed, right-handed, what your religion, your creed is, uh, whether you're six foot nine or four foot nine, it doesn't matter. The world comes together, and I literally get tingles today, and I thought it was just the first time event in Calgary when I go, God, I feel tingles. Every Olympics is the same. It's an amazing global celebration of pride and culture where people are singing each other's anthems, and Palestinians are interacting with Israelis, and all kinds of cultures. It's the closest thing to equity and harmony that I've actually experienced in my living time, multiple times. So it, it just shows you what the world can do when there's a bigger calling. That's wonderful. Let's bring it up to what you're doing now. Tell us a little bit about yeah. your role there at TriMet in Portland. I mean, you're considered one of the most progressive transit agencies in the world. Give us a scope of what you, number of vehicles, drivers, all that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. So this is a, I'm going to call it a mid-size agency. We're not London, we're not New York. We got about 150 rail vehicles, small commuter rail line, and uh, we have more of a max system. We call it max. It's an at-grade street system. It does go through some tunnels and such. We're growing about 700 plus buses, growing up to, for what we thought was about 1,000 buses here in about five to six years. And uh, we have a paratransit system like most do, right? And we have different models how we deliver it, right? And so... It's a good base. The region here, similar to what we had when I was up in Vancouver, BC as well, some excellent foresight here by those who've gone before me, for sure, is it has an urban growth boundary. So that is one of the most powerful policies to start from that you just can't bleed growth all over the place. So you got to force yourself. How are you going to play in this penned-in geography? Of, we have three counties that we serve carry about 300,000 on a, a pre-COVID day, about 300,000 boardings a day. And we were growing the last 11 months. We've been up every month in, in ridership. So we had been trailing down, but now we were trailing up because we're also expanding the service. And like most centers, we play in a spectrum of some really cool Skookum technology stuff through to some stuff probably. We're probably close. We're like most people. If you get real honest, you're running some stuff on DOS almost. So we've got a spectrum like most agencies, if they're really honest about where they sit in their IT transformation. So we've got some IT debt equity, I call it. We're playing catch up, but yeah. 
there's some really cool stuff that goes on here and there's a, a really transit friendly culture yes. uh, that supports it. And those who help lay that plan have done a really nice job. We are not finished yet. I just introduced last month, very complex and comprehensive transit oriented development policy the agency's never had before. Hmm. So I led a lot of the TOD up in Vancouver many years ago. Yeah. We've been talking about this for decades now, right? But they, the people they put in charge done a really good job on it. I uh, deserve a lot of credit. But we need to get bigger and denser around our, 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 our footprints of transit outside the central business district core. So we need to learn from Europe and others. We've, the industry has got to improve its transit modal share. It's too low, in my humble opinion. When you compare to, I was over invited with the governor, Paul, here of Oregon last fall. We looked at, we're in London, and, and I've been there a number of times from the Olympic work I did. And TransLink was semi modeled after the London model many years ago, back to 1999. Not all of it, but parts of it. But how do you integrate? And so, but their modal shares for transit are about 42%. You look at Stockholm, where we went, was 44%. We're about four, and we're a pretty good modal share, right. particularly for the US, but that's not good enough. So we've got to start tilting uh, discussions I'm having here in Portland. How do we invest, but also make our investment assets sweat more so than ever before when the dollar is even more precious and less available. But you've got, we've got to tilt our policies, our governmental policies that say transit gets the advantage with cycling and walking. We've Mm -hmm. got to be conscious about that. For me, why is it that, all the government agencies should all be relocated on or near rapid transit lines, right? And all the jobs it creates and the public coming in and out, that should be a foundation rather than building these systems out in a farmer's field because somebody got in a local government got a really good real estate deal. So we need to densify up to enhance the mobility where people, the options work from the customer's lens, not because the operating culture thinks it's the good thing. If we follow the customer, they will force us to have really good outcome conversations. If, if policy leads only without the customer, we're not customer-centric. I find this interesting, very ops-centric and policy-governed, policy-driven. It is not highly customer-centric. We have a lot of work to do here. And I think we're going to be tested like never before to come up with a new value proposition beyond essential service status for those who need it particularly for the smaller to mid-range agencies, the bigger gals and guys in New York, they're just trying to feed the subways and they're way ahead of all of us, history and size and scale-wise. But we've got to get more customer-centric to get truly people out of their car where there's still a choice. Let's talk about getting people out of their car now after COVID, right? Walk me through the COVID-19, how it impacted your agency and how you're recovering now. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, I think we're all, throwing a curve, right? To start with, the supply chains broke down. I'm literally making with my assistant hand sanitizer on my boardroom table, mixing this stuff up. We can't rely on a supply chain. What are we going to do for employees? Well, they're out there doing an amazing work. This industry is often lost behind the really important medical people. But we are like right there. So we cannot lose track of what the importance of all around the world that we do to get people where they want to go who have no other choice. So for us, we got thrown the curve. There's a whole bunch of policies we hadn't contemplated that we needed, but we sure we needed them. So we're all scrambling like everybody. Here's where we're at now. I think supply chains has become more mature and recalibrating a bit, which is good. 
but what we've done is we are now doubling down on our revenues. Our ridership's down about 67%, 70% range. Not unique in the industry. Some are down even 90% plus, right, right. as you know. Meters, so yeah. paratransit is more of an on-demand single vehicle trip. We hit, they took a hit originally about 85%, down around 80%. Let's just call it, we're down in the, we're down by about 70%. So thank gosh for the CARES Act. So thank you to all of the government leadership to help all of us, frankly, stabilize and try and buy some time. For the big systems, that's not going to be enough. They're going to need more help. And we need to help yeah. them as sisters and brothers in this industry to be yeah. everyone successful, right? For me, it's, it's, it's no transit agency left behind. So we, we got to be cognizant not just of ourselves, but our, our, our fellow people in this industry. How much did you guys get? We got $185 million. So that's going to help us a lot through, so I'll, I'm going to come back to this because it sounds for some like a lot of money, and it is. It's a lot of taxpayer money. But an agency, our, my budget's $1.6 billion, right? And so with all, when you add up all the servicing, debt services, a dollar out the yeah. door, is I got a, those are commitments, right? So the first steps I took is immediately hiring freeze like many did while we're still fighting the fight every day of the system right. on many fronts. I've done a um, non-union uh, wage freeze. We're in collective bargaining right now. We'll see where that goes. But also uh, then it was immediate. What capital can I, I need to save financial oxygen. And so I've been through this in the oil business where the price of crude, I remember where it literally went to 0.0 cents per liter or called 0. 0.0 cents per gallon where people were bringing their bathtubs to the gas pumps to fill up. So I can go back that long. So this is not just new, but we are used to that in our culture where literally commodity pricing, you live or die by it and you size your business accordingly. So the CARES Act has bought us some time, Paul, but you start the behaviors now. So I set out four principles for the strategic approach I was going to take. And this is, this is the moments of truth to a CEO's value system, in my opinion. And by the way, it's all playing out fast, so you don't have a lot of time. So right. what I did learn in Shell when I was trained in scenario planning is you can be strategic and you can be fast. Being strategic does not always have to take a lot of time. So that was a real learning for me many, many years ago. I, I, it's resonated with me. So... First principle was preserve service dollars to the degree that you can't, even if you don't need them today, preserve them for the future. So second thing is retain employment, knowing where I thought we were going to go, there's a recession, if not maybe a depression, for the only question is in how long, I just don't know. So the third thing was financial flexibility. There's so many assumptions that even Wall Street doesn't know today. So having been in the private sector and business valuations and things of that nature in finance, you better, cash is king and queen, right? So you better preserve it even though you don't think you need it today. So act like you do. And so I then started cutting capital programs back. I'm reviewing every single department's capital personally. I'm reviewing every single hire personally. So authority in crisis out of business case is typically centralizes. Right. You can't stay there forever, but it typically centralizes and that's what I did. Are so, you slowing down the bus buys? Not right now. That's not good. Right now. I was going to say, that, as you'd probably know, that happened to me when I got to Baltimore. They had skipped a year, and man, it really uh, You'll pay a big up. price. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, this agency from the last recession, Paul, in 2008, went where our average age was 16, 17 years. We had buses 19, almost 20 wow. years old. Wow. Here, right? Too long. And so yeah. it, we only cut to the, not to the bone, but to the marrow. 
Right. Our average age fleet now is about eight point something years. Okay. So it's been transforming over the last number of years. We've got some latitude in there, but we're also converting. We can't forget the criticality of this crisis as it intersects with the importance of reducing our GHGs. Right. You've right. got to go zero emission plus. Yeah. We've got all these spectrums of responsibilities we're trying to manage, but there's levers of slow it down, speed it up, but there's a premium cost to getting to, out of diesel. Yes. Based on where the memory and the industry is right now and the related infrastructure that goes to support it. So there's a significant premium we're paying that we can't lose sight of that responsibility at the same time we don't have the same kind of money. So I'm trying to look at short, medium, and long call under every single day and every decision I make. Do I need it today? Yes, no. Can I live with it in the medium term? And what does this do for the long term? Because industries like ourselves are also great job creators in crises. So yeah. in capital projects, it creates jobs for the economy to get it going, right. Right? right? So we're going to need to play a role of the immediate, the mid, and the longer term, in my opinion. So I'm trying to manage all that. That's so good. all of this on the basis of safety. So if it's not safe, we aren't doing it. I'd rather shut the line down. I'm going to shut the bus line down. We're, stu- we're, not, we're just not crossing that bridge. because number one. Well, these are the moments of truth. Yeah, exactly. Right? That's a good line, man. We got to remember that. These are the moments of truth. Yeah. These are the moments of truth as a leader. Are you in or are you not? Now, you, there's, where there's a gray zone, but you cannot cross that gray zone, Paul, yeah. personally or corporately. If you do, you've just sold your equity. You've increased the risk profile beyond what you've, you really should be taking on. So we're going to have to have the, we are having these conversations in our own organization right now. Right. Good. And by the way, even part of it's around policing, defund police. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Let's flip over to that a little bit. That's a nice segue from the COVID discussion. So now we've had weeks of unrest in some of the communities around the country, and I know you've had some there in Portland. Oh, yeah. Tell us about that and how you've responded. Well, look, I mean, firstly, I'm a Canadian. I went to college in the States. My wife's an amazing, she's an American. We got married in Wyoming, so I'm about as North American as one could probably get. My kids are all dual citizens. But I got to tell you, Paul, when I, every night I turn on the TV, some of these circumstances, George Floyd's, and Brianna's, and other. These are gut-wrenching. And like every yeah. few nights, another one coming out going, this is unbelievable and it's, it is unacceptable. The systemic racism exists. We've got to put a name on it. We've got to call it. We've got to, we've got to help get to a new place. I have people of colors who attended my wedding party. I don't understand this. From Canada, it's a very diverse multicultural society. Yes. Vancouver is always in the top five of most livable cities in the world, typically. I, I'm used to Punjabi, Mandarin, Cantonese, all cultures and welcome. There's racism there too, but this has got to be dealt with. And so we encourage protesting, but you can't cross the line and do it violently. To damage people and assets, that's just, that's not acceptable in a civil society in a great country like this is. And so, but we need to use this, this uprising to change and we need to change i need to be reflective as a leader and engage in ways that we maybe haven't thought about before so when i first took over the tone at the top i changed about a significant number of my executive it's a lot more diverse now by choice it starts with me i can't change that i'm a white male from canada i'm proud of my heritage and who i am but everybody should be proud of where they came from and their story we started a few years ago pre this 
We have culture day now here in TriMet. If you're from Brazil or from Ethiopia, bring your food, bring your culture. If you, oh, if you, if you love our, yeah, so we, I started culture day here, right? And I said, be proud of it. And so, and people bring in music and band and from the different bus garages. And I just, this gets to welcoming the world. Be proud of where you come from as an American, whether you're from Louisiana or from Argentina, be proud and be welcome. So we need, like the Olympics, we need to be embracing of the world's and its diversity. These raw tragedies have to be leveraged to get us to a new place. And I say that not as an American because I'm not one, but right. I say it as a citizen of the world. Yeah, I understand. So, so is the new place I want to be involved, part of that. Is, does the new place involve you not having police on your vehicles? Because I just read an article about that. Well, the city of Portland right now, this week, is looking to defund their contribution to our, inter, our, our regional policing model that we have. So I think we need to listen. So part of this, by the time this comes out, is you're going to come out with saying, I want to go out and listen. I think the community wants to listen. What I do know, and I, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday either, and there's a bunch of other ways to deliver. We need to be receptive of that for people who need mental health. Instinctively, Paul, I think we've, and I have friends who are police officers, and I think we've asked too much of the police. They're managing homeless issues. They're having mental well health. I feel sorry for them. Yeah, I think society has just demanded them to be stretched so wide, any and all causes, and now it's police and now it's your fault. We need good policing and get rid of the bad policing. What those reforms are, there's people a lot smarter than me can help us get there. Yeah. So let's rip this Band-Aid off as it's getting ripped off. Let's get to new place. What I do believe personally is we are going to go out and listen to all types of users of our system. I have an obligation to provide a safe environment, which often gets lost for my staff too. It's That's lost right. in the rhetoric, but yeah. let's also provide a safe environment for all the customer types, all the customer types. And if we have some social equity issues, man, we got to, we got to, we got to, person up to that and talk about it. So how do we calibrate that? And if there's other things that are not a police officer's needed, then let's, let's be open to that. But what I do know is I've also been around long enough in different agencies, as you've seen in the Olympics and other places, but I'll tell you, we need good policing, not no policing. Because I've seen examples, and you would have seen it in MTA, you may not like a police officer, but boy, when you need them, they can't get there quick enough, Right. And so I've been through riots in Vancouver where I was literally at ground zero with the Stanley Cup riots. We've had riots going on here all across this amazing country. But so we, we need to, the goal is not to have to have those riots, it's to have healthy protests when those things occur for freedom of speech and protecting that. But we, if we need to make adjustments, no policing is not a good game. Tell that to somebody we had somebody on our system coming into protest. We found, only because a police officer found the person on our train bringing an ax into downtown. Not good. So nobody else can help remove that but an officer, right? Yeah. I am not a big fan of 911-only models. That's an acknowledgement. Transit is better than that. Transit deserves better than that. If we want everyone to get out of their cars, then we owe a safe and secure environment that they can get where they want to go safe and securely. And policing is one instrument in the game, but it's not all. So right. I think we have to be receptive to what that looks like. And, and so yeah. I think it's going to zero, I think is a very dangerous model. 
Yeah, I think that's a very balanced approach, Doug. Thank you for that. In, in our remaining few minutes, let's talk about the future. And I know you have a lot of great plans for TriMed, and I'd like to get some of them out to our listeners because you have so many cool things on the books coming. Talk to us a little bit about what's coming in the next three to five years for TriMed. Well, I, I think there's I, – I, I, we're looking at right now a, a automated headset tour, right? And so I've been in, we've got our folks right now in kind of a little mini recording studio. We met with all the historians in the, in the region. Tell us your story. Tell us about yeah. the brothels. Tell us about the submarine that's on the water. Tell us about this thing called Mount Hood. Mount St. Helens that blew up. They literally, you can see. Right. So let's use transit where we've got capacity to not just be the commuter tool, which is a great tool. Let's use it for to be part of the region's storytelling. Let's use it to move from transaction to experience, where people go, freaking multiple language I may be able to hear. Tell me on the left-hand side, and you can use it for new immigrants coming to, because a lot of new immigrants come to urban centers. Here. So I'm piloting this right now, and it's just getting ready to come out here in the next bit. So that's one example. That's neat. But what I'm, but what I'm really getting to, in fact, I, mean, I did this actually in Vancouver back in the rail conference of APTA. I think it was back in 2007 something. I had two CEOs come up to me who you will know their names. I won't say I'll protect them. They said, how do I get that? So it was a pilot. And then I, I killed it because the people I was partnered with in the private sector were unethical. I said, I'm not crossing that line. You're done. And then I, something called the Olympics came up and I got a little distracted. Right? <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make here is the industry, because of people working from home like never before, is going to stick. And fuel prices are going to be low. That's always been a drag on I'll stay in my car because it's cheaper. Because people don't live for the full life cycle, aren't doing the math of life cycle. They live for the moment. How much does it cost me to fill up, right? Yeah. And their car insurance. That's, that's life cycle costing for many people. So we're going to have to work harder, I believe, as an industry, Paul, than ever before. Because I think ridership is not going to rebound just up. Some of it's going to come back, but we've got to get people who drive their cars out where that, those alternatives are competitive and exist. Right? And I think I am going to be an evangelist to reform public policy that we talked about at the front of this interview to tilt the playing field that we should be using Q-jumper lanes, transit signal priority, HOV lanes. We need to consciously as policy change to give advantage to the trio of good, better, and best, walking, cycling, transits, of all that combination, and truly unbundling and penalizing the consumption of the single occupant vehicle. So there's a policy piece to this to evangelize. The second piece is the products piece. The industry, in my experience, Paul, again, full circle, my, my career to be in public transportation is part of being in the customer service business. My whole career has been joined by intersections around the customer by choice. And so if we can solve this, we need to have real conversations. Why is it each of our smart cards doesn't talk to other transit cities. We own yeah. this. Right. That is embarrassing, and we own it, Paul. And we need to work with the willing who may be changing their models over. Let's go get those who have money and are going to prepare to pay. So Seattle can talk to Portland, and Portland can talk to Denver, and Denver can, we can all talk and use our system of our smart cards. Because the business person has money, is prepared to pay, and time is important to them. If we don't enhance our value proposition to them, there's too many barriers in this industry. It reminds me when I was at Starbucks. I remember going to my first drink. I was not really a coffee drinker, right? 
and you go up to the counter and you, it's like going to a ticket vending machine. Yeah. You go, at first you got people behind you feeling a little pressured. Then you're going to go decaf, no foam, no soy. Like what frick? I just want a coffee. Right. right. And then go up to a ticket vending machine and you and I are in this industry and people listening are, you go to another city and you're back to square one and what their ticket vending machine looks like. And we're supposed to be pros and know this stuff. They're all different. So there's too many barriers and friction points. So we've got to remove them one by one to go, this works on my lifestyle. So the vision I've laid out here for our organization is a plan, book, pay instrument where we've moved our transit authority with our board's great vision and help from a transit authority to a, a mobility agency. So you go, okay, what does that mean? Well, it's firstly acknowledging we're in the mobility of business and we may not be the, first, the best people to get you where you want to go. Ooh, that's a heretic concept. I thought it's all about only transit. No, this is, are you customer centric or are you offering centric? So we're actually pursuing listing out all the combinations of scooter and transit, walking and transit, cycling and transit, cycling, scooter and transit. If we can come up with all those combinations, you just say, Paul, I want to go from A to B. And then we list out all the combinations, the time and the prices it'll take, plan, book, pay. So I want to integrate all of it long-term so the customer is in control. And then we, in the back room, leverage our buying power. This industry is terrible at leveraging its, its buying power. It's the worst industry I've actually ever seen. We are all these islands onto our own. Yeah. And so we did this in the oil industry decades ago. We should be looking at common IT centers. There's so many cost structures that you can synergize. We send all these people to do cybersecurity training. They all go back to respective agencies and talk about the same thing. Yeah. So we need to look at our back room and reform our structures and synergize where we've got capabilities. The front room is plan, book, pay, remove the friction points. Then we can turn to the Ubers and Lyfts of the world, who are probably listening and not liking this, to say, by the way, I just didn't make a phone call to you to, to give you a trip, or a customer did. We bought 100,000 trips. What kind of discount are you going to give me? And by the way, we may actually give VIP parking. If we booked a trip for you, you get to park right at the very front. And by the way, if you didn't book, you can still stop, drop somebody off, but you're way at the back of the line. And so we need to leverage our distribution channels, including BRT. If they, we book a trip for you, if we book the trip for you, you can participate in our infrastructure utilization. That's where I'm going. That's great, Doug. What a great vision. Thank you so much for being with us today and sharing with us about your background, all the experiences you've had, how you're leading the city of Portland through this extraordinary time in our history here in the country and the vision you have for the future I love it. Customer-centric, focused on them in the end. That's the way we win in the end. Thanks for being with us today on this episode of Transit Unplugged. Great to be here, Paul. Thanks for all you're doing, too. You're a great industry leader. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.